stained, scented. Stent, scented when I enter, not stinted. Soul scented. Whole when I enter. Pass all their plays to bring forth my dimension. Try to gaslight me, but my path is lit. My path is lit by Harriet, showing me the North Star. Off right where you are. Yeah. We enter in these conversations for freedom. Soul scented. Welcome, Jose. Thank you. Jose Arias. Uh, one of my favorite people. I have to Aww, tell you. I appreciate that. Seriously. Mm. I feel <laughs> you're like ah. um so just to like let the viewers know how we know each other, I you have a phenomenal partner, uh Dr. Julie Wilson, who I wanna shout out, who she and I worked together for some years, uh, back in the day. And mm. so through Julie I met you. Yes, I DJed several events there at the Haas Center in Stanford. Yeah. Yeah, I'm in a university that shall not be named, even though I just named it. <laughs> I know, right? I'm like, ooh. And you DJed my daughter's, like, a birthday party for my daughter. I mean, I feel like we've been in this kind of, like, zone together for a little while. Oh, yeah. And yeah. Uh, I was your uh, son's first employer. Yes, you were. <laughs> <laughs> There's some stuff we won't say about that. But, you know, he has a thing that he could put on his resume that mm -hmm. then has been a path to many things. Oh, so, yeah, yes. yeah. Shout out to the first employer, right? I swear. <laughs> it's, so, it's just to, to show the relationship. But I, mm -hmm. I, I will say the other thing is we have music in common. Mm -hmm. So, you know, somebody might look at you and think, you know, you're a business person, you're a this, you're a that, you're intellectual, academic but you are also a DJ and love music. Oh, yeah. yeah. Tell so. us about that. I want to hear a little bit how you got started with that. Oh, man. How did I get started? It was, uh, I mean, you know, I've been raised with music, music uh, in my life um, since day one. My father was, you know, an avid collector of Latin music and, you know, uh, English music as well. Mm -hmm. um, he loved, you know, disco and he loved... Uh, rock and r&b soul but you know the other side which was what he mostly collected was like the cumbia the salsa merengue the boleros trios so mm. i was always exposed to that i mean i would i have fond memories of waking up at like three four in the morning both in the united states as well as in el salvador with him already up listening to music and mm. drinking whatever he had in his cup at that point in the morning um, but yeah, so um, from there, you know, I went to college uh, and had friends who were DJs and they let me hop on their turntables from time to time and mess around with their vinyl records because at that point it was just records. Mm -hmm. um, and that's basically how I got started. I had one friend in particular who really taught me how to blend and scratch. That was uh, Javier uh, Corrales. His, his DJ name is Nomadic. Mm. Still DJs, um, and I actually just saw him maybe about a few months ago. He lives down south now, but yeah. And then from there, just got my own turntables, and uh, you know, I was already collecting vinyl and cassette tapes and CDs and all that good stuff. So it was kind of an easy transition for me to start uh, playing the music on the turntables, and and then people just started reaching out asking if I wanted to DJ. So. You know, I was always happy to do that for good friends and, and family, and uh, here we are today. Here we are. And yeah. your DJ name is DJ Ill-Equipped? Ill-Equipped, yeah. How'd you get that name? Uh, so, um, you know, I just was thinking long and hard about what kind of made sense. Uh, and, you know, Ill is has a double meaning, meaning like 
not good and also good mm-hmm. and uh, you know equipped is kind of self-explanatory mm-hmm. so i kind of wanted something that kind of played around with the language yeah. um and you know uh you know, ill is definitely part of the hip hop vernacular, mm-hmm. so I kind of wanted to draw from that as well. Mm-hmm. My f- original DJ name was DJ Kaka Poopy. No, <laughs> dropping the hot shit. You know, <laughs> is that is that yeah, true? Yeah, yeah, and then thank you for the name change. Yeah, and uh, one of my boys, uh, after he heard the name, was like, "I see where you're going with that, but maybe you want to reconsider." And I was like, "Okay." We'll think about it. <laughs> Shout out to whoever that was. Yeah. Because I'm telling you, you know, there's this energy around names. Right. And, right. you know, I feel like ill-equipped huh? does a better thing. Yeah. I'm just yeah, saying. Yeah. It's a better, <laughs> better moniker. Yeah. yeah. I want to take you into, so there's two other musical questions I want to, like, dig into. Mm-hmm. Cumbia. So I was just, we were just mm-hmm. celebrating your mom. Mm-hmm. And I believe you had a band there that was playing cumbia. Right. And what struck me was the accordion. Mm-hmm. Is mm-hmm. that like the key thing that makes cumbia different? Like this accord, because mm-hmm. like I, I've heard all kinds of different music, and I might not be able to name them all. But what struck me the entire time was the accordion. Yeah, I mean, uh, accordion is part of a lot of cumbia. Cumbia originated in Colombia. That's mm-hmm. where it first started, and then it started spreading throughout Latin America. Uh, has big strongholds in. Mexico, El Salvador, um, obviously uh, uh, Colombia, those are kind of the three main areas where cumbia is played um, a lot. Um, and cumbia in Colombia, a lot of it is with accordion. Same uh, same with uh, Mexico, um, not as much in El Salvador, as although there is a type of music that's similar to cumbia called chanchona, which they use the accordion while they're playing that music. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's a big part of the cumbia culture. Um, it, you know, it came with the, from what I understand, the German immigrants to mm, Latin America. That's, okay. Yeah, that's how the recording came. Mm. But I think the the kind of the bass sound is what is kind of like a commonality with all cumbia. The mm, 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 okay, mm, mm. okay. And I noticed like, that yeah, too. Yeah, so it's, yeah. Okay. It's kind of okay. almost similar to like the, like you know reggae you know yeah. has a kind of similar yeah. bass structure to it yeah. and, which is what i really love about it yeah yeah okay. and then cumbia in mexico is more they kind of move more towards kind of like a electronic type music but it's more like old school electronic mm-hmm. music um and they also slow down the cumbia records from colombia which they call rebajada mm-hmm. that's what the sound systems do you know like the djs they'll they'll to uh, make it like half speed mm-hmm. um, and then there's like a whole dance that goes along with it whereas in El Salvador it's just like you know a lot of uh, uh, kind of medium speed uh, medium pace cumbia and, and it's a lot of kind of like in- sexual innuendos <laughs> which is yeah. <laughs> which is kind of what El Salvador is known for you know oh, they okay. like to play around with language like that oh, so I didn't know that. yeah okay. well this is what leads me into our my second musical question, which will take us into the conversation. Because, you know, over the years, knowing you, we've gone to quite a few concerts. Mm-hmm. You've you've put on, you do this, um, is it called Latin Fresh? That's one of the artists that we brought. But okay. the, the, 
the it's an event first Friday, monthly. yeah, first Friday of every month. It's called Cultura Latino. There you go. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. Okay, thank you. And that's at Seventh West um, in Oakland. Let's Shout do out. a little ad. <laughs> Bay Area, yeah, come through every first Friday. Thank yep. you. See, he's, he's, he's yeah. got a lot going yeah. on. Right. So the thing is, is that you, I feel like, have been one of my. I have another friend named Ramon. Shout out Ramon, who's like really educated me about. Um, Spanish reggae, like mm -hmm. reggaeton, but like, I don't know the best words, but like, I will say from my own just regular person vernacular, like reggae and Spanish, mm -hmm. right? And like, the thing that's been interesting to me is that I'm going to just tell you, I feel very territorial mm -hmm. about reggae, right? Mm -hmm. Like, I get very like, first of all, Jamaicans, you know, <laughs> we, we created the whole thing. It's all us, right? <laughs> You know, maybe our African ancestors had a little bit to do with it. But, you know, it's us, Jamaica. Yeah. <laughs> you know, Jamaica, right, right. Bob Marley. Can yeah. Need I say more, Peter right. Tosh? So, like, there's, like, a ownership that happens when mm -hmm. I start thinking about reggae. And then, like, I went to the concert that really turned me around was Alika. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I saw Alika. She has locks. She reminded me of a Rastafarian mm -hmm. that I would have encountered in Jamaica. And the only difference was the language. And I thought to myself, you know, Damali, you need to stop. You need to stop <laughs> all this territorial nonsense mm -hmm. because we are connected through mm -hmm. African ancestry, through uh, the the like Middle Passage, mm -hmm. the transatlantic slave trade that ended up in different places, including Latin America. So there is a connection and a bridge. Right. And so why wouldn't the music yeah. be alive in like Latin America? Oh, so yeah. tell me a little yeah. bit about that side of reggae? Um, well, um, you know, really the reggae in Espanol, which is different than reggaeton, reggaeton right. came from oh, reggae in Espanol. Um, it, that started in Panama. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, uh, that's, that's kind of the general understanding. And really it came from the Jamaican immigrants that, mm -hmm. that went to Panama. I mean, there's a huge yes, there back is. and forth. Panama uh, Canal. Uh, yeah, mm -hmm. back and forth travel between mm -hmm. the two. There's, large families in mm -hmm. Panama who have family in mm -hmm. Jamaica and um, it started in those communities there in Panama and initially they were just doing covers of um, reggae songs in English mm -hmm. but then they started doing the Spanish uh, covers and then doing their own uh, verses over the rhythms um, that was one side of it there's also another uh, uh, narrative uh, about it starting or, you know, part of it starting in, in New York with, uh, you know, I mean, there's Jamaicans there. Yeah, there's everybody in New York. Everybody goes to New York. And so, like, people York, are, right? you know, just constantly um, encountering each other, encountering yeah. different cultures. And, you know, Panamanians are running with Jamaican crews and Jamaicans are running with Honduran crews and Colombian crews. I mean, so there's just, you know, inevitably there's going to be that fusion the cross-pollination cross-pollination mm -hmm. right um and so you know the, the gringo man was one of the first uh pioneers in that scene mm. um doing uh uh spanish reggae in, in in new york whereas in colombia it was more like renato and nando boom and you know folks like that mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah i feel like you brought nando boom or i feel like yeah. i've seen him yeah yeah we brought him a couple times your, yeah. yeah 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 actually we brought him for the first time to california actually well the first time to the bay area and we brought him a couple times um and we're trying to bring some really good artists coming this year uh for my 50th oh yeah. 
Yay. Welcome to your 50th this year. Welcome 50, to that 50 yeah, club. 2023, mm. and it's gonna it kind of coincides with the 10 year anniversary of our party. Oh wow, Culture Latino. So yeah, we're we're thinking about bringing in um, some amazing artists. Uh, so stay tuned. We will. We will stay tuned. And so let me give you the confession. Mm -hmm. I'll just straight up. And this is connected to the conversation I want to have with you about the relationships between black and brown folks. So when I talk about black and brown folks in this context, mm -hmm. I'm going to be talking about a range of experiences. So you represent one. You're mm -hmm. from El Salvador. I'm Jamaican and American. So like there's a mix of experience, but it's not the full picture. Right. But I, right. I want to just have like a conversation about how we can like really see each other more, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Because the truth is, what I noticed in me when I had the resistance to the Spanish-speaking reggae, it's like, it's a, it's a little bias. There's something in me mm -hmm. that's feeling, oh, it's not theirs, it's mm -hmm. ours. Mm -hmm. Like it's that kind of us and them narrative inside mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that I had to like make peace with. I had to like come to terms with like, you know, where did I get that from? Mm -hmm. Where did I, decide that this music has this only this one place that it can be alive mm -hmm. and i had to be like girl let it go in the sense that it doesn't belong i don't possess it mm -hmm. jamaica doesn't possess it like mm -hmm. you said we mm -hmm. meet we right. cross pollinate there's a whole and there's a beautiful mm -hmm. expression coming out where i'm like grooving to alika mm -hmm. and nando mm -hmm. boom too oh, right yeah, yeah. Uh -huh. so like i have to say to myself What's going on, right? I feel like there's a what's going on conversation that needs to happen, I think, with more between more Latin people and more people of African descent. Because mm -hmm. I mm -hmm. do still notice that there is like a like a something's in the way of us. Right. There's like a divide. Yeah. yeah. What yeah. what do you, what are your impressions of that just off the cuff? I mean, off the cuff, yeah. um, you know, I mean, we live in former colonies and you know the restructures within those colonies to separate people and uh, create a hierarchy and we're still living with those structures today I mean just because you know there was independence in the United States and in mm -hmm. Jamaica and in Panama and Colombia I mean doesn't mean that those structures just disappeared um, and so part of that those structures unfortunately was the anti-black racism you know um, and it, we still live with it uh, not just in, within the United States, but also it manifests itself differently in different countries. And mm -hmm. you still see it, Brazil, you still see it, Colombia, Panama, um, El Salvador, there's not too many uh, black, like Afro-Latinos there. Oh, okay. Yeah. I was going to ask that. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. There are a few, but um, it's not like, uh, like Honduras, which has a large Afro-Latino population, especially with the Garifunas, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. and they also have a large uh, reggae and Espanol community mm -hmm. out there. Um, but yeah, uh, you know, I think we're just living with the structures that were baked into the system during the colonial period. Um, you know, and it goes further back than that, but mm -hmm. uh, that really kind of, that's kind of where I see a lot of it stemming from, um, in particular in this country. You know, I can't really speak much on other countries, but um, from my experience in the in the United States and in California, and it, through my studies, that's kind of what I see as a, a major um, problem in terms of black and brown relationships. Mm -hmm. um, uh, kind of dealing with the racism that we we inherited from from this country, this country's history. 
And he mentioned the colonizers. Right. And, um, you know, that's the part that to me is really sad is that, you know, between the legacy of enslavement, the legacy of um, stripping people of land, mm -hmm. and I think those two are so parallel. So, like, you know, you trap and enslave bodies, and then you take, you, you know, rip land from people. Mm -hmm. And so I think those have been parallel experiences. And from what I understand of history, the Native American population were really the primary in, in this country, mm -hmm. uh, target population for land being taken. Mm -hmm. Recently learned that there has been some enslavement of Native American people, so they experienced some degree of that. Mm -hmm. And then the relationship between Mexico and California, Texas specifically, like this side of the country, um, you know, people have said time and again that California is Mexico. Like, really, the state that we're on was a whole nother country. And so, who owned, whose state is this, right? right? So it's like this conversation is this really like Mexican land, mm -hmm. you know, land that belonged to the Mexican people. And not doing my geography precisely, I know that like El Salvador, Mexico have a, you're in the same mm -hmm. geographic region, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So is there like a relationship too, in some ways between uh, the, this kind of land grab in California? Mm -hmm. Um the fact that Mexico, it feels like, lost that land and El Salvador. Is there any, like, mm -hmm. piece in that that has a relationship to El Salvador? Or is it just, mm -hmm. is it Mexico was the primary target? Yeah, uh, at the, you know, when, when Mexico lost, uh, you know, the Southwest, uh, it, it was no longer a part of the Spanish Empire. It had already gained independence and it was separate from El Salvador. Okay. Um, but yeah, you're absolutely correct. You know, that, um, uh, you know, after that Mexican-American war, uh, I think the United States gained like, like a third of its landmass, uh, with the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo mm -hmm. and, um, you know, that absorbed, you know, California, Arizona, New Mexico, Texas. Um, well, Texas was, I think, a little bit different because there was something else going there. But actually, history. Yeah. There's so much uh, to yeah, learn, which yeah. is the thing that is like, ooh. right. Yeah. Um, you know, it was its own beast, but I think it was still part of that whole uh, treaty. But um, but yeah, it was it was separate from El Salvador. Uh, Mexico also didn't have a lot of African folks who were brought in because there were so many native folks mm -hmm. that they were used uh, that they used for you know um, slavery in different iterations um, and you know there was a lot of mixing going on but um, between you know the, the white folks and the, the indigenous folks and you know some of the African folks that were that were brought in but primarily it was the natives in uh, in Mexico that were you know the you know, essentially slaves, you know, mm -hmm. um, but, uh, you know, it, with it throughout Latin America, really any Catholic country, mm -hmm. um, uh, you know, there was this, um, person who was, his name was Bartolome de los Casas, who basically was saying that, uh, you know, native folks were essentially had souls and you know could be saved they were kind of like children whereas uh africans uh you know um 
they could basically be used as chattel slavery. So yeah. that was the line that, that was, was the drawing. line that it was drawn, and that kind of gave justification to bring all these black slaves into the Latin American colonies during the Spanish colonial period. Mm. Yeah. Mm. So yeah, it was it's pretty nasty uh, how that happened, um, and you know the justification that was given, and we're still living with it to this day. You know, you, you, you know, same thing as similar to the United States. African American, I mean, Afro Latinos in the various former Spanish colonies are definitely, you know, typically the the least uh, wealthy. You know, mm-hmm. um, have no have you know little to no no property. Um, you know, dealing with the criminal justice systems mm-hmm. um, more so than other populations. Um, but you know, once again, it's different for each country. Right. right? That's kind of right. like a generality mm-hmm. kind of where they're large presence of um, where there's a large presence of the Afro-Latino community. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But, you know, that's the part that I really wanted to dig into today is the fact that somewhere along the line was that narrative, right? Mm-hmm. Was that process of socializing folks to see one as more human mm-hmm. and one as less human. Mm-hmm. And that was correlated to the color of your skin. Mm-hmm. Bottom mm-hmm. line, We've had a whole global kind of mechanism at play that the lighter you are, the better you are. The darker you are, the lesser you are is the narrative that's been painted. And we inherited it. And so, you know, we're raised in our home society around us telling us this. And then it shows up. Which part of this do you still see showing up in Latin American culture? If you want to speak specifically to El Salvador, maybe. Mm -hmm. Like, I want you to feel like where your expert, where your experience is, mm-hmm. um, and not to speak for all people. Right. <laughs> I want to be sure none right. of us here are speaking right. for all the people. Yeah. So, so um, I mean, you know, one thing I just wanted to clear up, like, I was born in the States. I was yeah. born in San Francisco. My father's from El Salvador. And my mom is, you know, her family's originally from Missouri and mm-hmm. from before then, like, Europe, you know. So, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a mixed race person. Uh, but... From my experience in El Salvador, um, you know, since there are not a lot of Afro-Latin folks, um, really the kind of the hierarchy is between like white folks, what, you know, former families from that, you know, who's did little to no mixing over the years, over their generations, who were able to uh, have wealth concentrated in their hands. They definitely stand at the top of the hierarchy and at the very bottom. Are the more like indigenous folks you know the, the, the um one of the main um uh, groups there is the maya Pipi, yeah, yeah, yeah mm-hmm. Pipi maya um but uh to be honest there's not even a lot of the Pipi maya at this point because mm-hmm. uh one of the actually was the first uh marxist revolution that took place in the western hemisphere was in el salvador mm-hmm. and uh this uh, individual by the name of Faribundo Marti organized along with these huge, uh, with the Native American populations, um, a revolt against the, uh, it was like, I believe it was about 14 families that mm-hmm. really had the wealth concentrated in their hands. But mm-hmm. the they found out about this revolt before it happened and they basically gathered up all these indigenous folks and wiped them out. This was mm-hmm. around 1935. Yeah, so it was wow. it was very brutal. Yeah, very brutal um, period during the uh, in, in El Salvador history, 
and we're still living with it today you know you don't see a lot of like straight up native folks like you do in like say guatemala mm. uh, in el salvador um it's more like you know wow. more there's more mixing that has happened over the years mm. and like i said a lo you know, large communities were wiped out around 1935 because of that revolution even folks that were not involved with the potential revolution were gathered up and, and you know uh, killed um but but Long story short, um, you do see that hierarchy. The lighter skin are definitely like towards that towards the top of the hierarchy, both in terms of um, their socioeconomic status as well as the way that people see beauty. Mm. You know, so if right. you have the indigenous look, you have darker skin, you're basically considered not beautiful. Like mm. the people tell you to kind of stay out of the sun. You know, they they encourage uh, the daughters who are more native looking to marry up meaning marry someone that's lighter, lighter skin or european looking um and this you know it happens in all communities and from my experience in el, el salvador even like even the poorest communities it's the same kind of um dynamics um, that, that, that are coming into play within that community and then you have the, the el salvador community like as a whole where, mm -hmm. where you see that going on Colorism, Colorism is right. the thing that, you know, well, you just described Jamaica. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. you know, there's a lot of colorism in a country like <clears throat> Jamaica. Again, lighter is the goal. And so you have a whole bleaching mm -hmm. phenomenon that's <clears throat> been happening for the last, I don't know, like a decade at least, where young women in particular, but now young men, uh, are bleaching to be lighter. Mm -hmm. And... Mm -hmm. You know, it's interesting because I'm a lighter hued person. So I try, I've had a conversation with uh, my daughter about a friend of hers who decided to bleach. And this young woman is darker. And I believe the most beautiful complexion. And yet my daughter said, mom, you don't understand. You sit on that light skin seat, you in that light skin seat, you don't understand. So I said, you know what? I don't, I don't understand. I see it. I observe it, I benefit from the privilege, and yet I'm not in that young woman's shoes to know the mm -hmm. feeling of mm -hmm. being ostracized. So I say that with all the compassion, but it feels to me like a product of white supremacy mm -hmm. culture. Mm -hmm. And when you mentioned Catholicism, mm -hmm. what comes up for me, and I tell me if this is similar in El Salvador, but in Jamaica, in most homes, there's a picture of Jesus. Mm -hmm. And it's a very white Jesus mm -hmm. in most African homes, like mm -hmm. <clears throat> people of African descent looking at a picture of God, right? That mm -hmm. is very white. Mm -hmm. So not accurate as right. far as historical uh, knowing about Christ. But I think a tactic to disconnect people mm -hmm. from themselves, to, mm -hmm. to revere something lighter. So right. is it the same in El Salvador? Do you have those kinds of pictures? Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, folks that are Catholic, definitely. Yeah. I mean, for the most part, it's all like the white Jesus, you know, the blonde, brownish hair, mm -hmm. with light skin, blue eyes, blue eyes and uh, that's prevalent throughout the country. Um, I mean, there are a couple areas that have like darker skin Jesus, but that's the exception rather than the rule. Mm. Um, um, and then you have all these different saints who, for the most part, are, are European looking. Okay. Um, which is interesting because, you know, a lot of these saints, they've kind of are almost hybrids of 
the gods in the Mayan cosmology. You know, so like, right, right. yeah, yeah, but like, like the Virgen de Guadalupe, <laughs> a lot of people say that she is um, uh, uh, a fusion of the 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 Aztec goddess. Uh, I can't remember. Uh, I can't remember her name, but but it was a a, a, a Aztec goddess who was revered in this area where the Virgin was supposed to have uh, appeared, mm -hmm. the, the hill of Tepeyac. Uh, it's, it was a religious center in the Aztec community or the Nahuatl community before the Spanish even arrived. Mm -hmm. And so there's some kind of uh, conversation around whether or not it appeared, I mean, she appeared there or, and you know, to this native person, or if it was something concocted by the Spanish to kind of use the uh, the kind of authority that that place represented and mm -hmm. steer people towards the um, Catholic Church, yeah. But um, you know, she's she's so, she's almost revered like like this goddess. Uh, um, I wish I remembered her name, but that's okay. Yeah, uh, but yeah. So you see a lot of that in Latin America, kind of like these. You know, the Catholic Church there is definitely very different from the Catholic Church in in Europe, you know, um, there's a lot of this kind of like this, this fusion that happened that mm -hmm. occurred between the native religions and the Catholic Church. Yeah. yeah. Have you been to Cuba? I have. Yeah. So that's for me because Jamaica and Cuba are very close in, in just proximity, but I know culturally the Santeria, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. to me, feels like a mix of right. Catholicism with the African-centered religion. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So it feels like that's a similar thing that you're mm -hmm. expressing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's definitely, it seems very similar. Um, and and I know that, you know, they use a lot of, like, uh, Catholic kind of artifacts or mm -hmm. paraphernalia in their ceremonies. Um, at least that's what from what I've observed. But, right. But, yeah, it's definitely seems to be heavily African, you know, the, kind of like the, the ceremony of it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but I mean, the thing that we're talking about is like the, in, the way spirituality has been interwoven and the way that I understand from history, the doctrine of discovery and different things that religion had a big part mm -hmm. in the enslavement process and in the socialization mm -hmm. of the lighter you are, the better you are. You just mentioned, you know, um, the saints and all the mm -hmm. things. And all of that is white, mm -hmm. right? Right. So here we are as people. And you, thank you for sharing kind of the identities that you hold. You know, like you, I was born in the United States to Jamaican parents. And my mother migrated here when I was young. And so I ended up living here and growing up here. And so I think we are a representation of that kind of mix mm -hmm. of people that bring different views, including a kind of Americanized view, mm -hmm. which is a little separate than maybe the folks who never left El Salvador, right. just like the folks who've never left Jamaica have a different perspective sometimes than I do. Mm -hmm. So well, here we are. You've been socialized into this process. You're growing up in the United States. What do you notice growing up about race about anti-blackness what are some of the experiences that you can say maybe were foundational in how you show up today um well you know I, you know i was born in 
San Francisco raised uh, a huge part of my life in the actually the Baptist church mm. uh, on my mom's side that's where you know they kind of um, place their allegiance mm. um, Southern Baptist by wow uh, yeah um, okay but um, so I, you know that kind of really gave me a lot of ideas around race when I was growing up um, and it really it didn't really strike me until I was in probably high school was when I really started noticing um, things in the sermon that didn't really sit right with me. Oh, I mean, there were things, you know, growing up that people, comments that people would make. Um, when, one thing I remember in particular was this like, you know, kind of quote unquote aunt of mine who was saying that, you know, did you know that Mexicans are in the Bible? And someone was like, what, what do you mean? And she's like, yeah, it, it says something about those who piss on walls or something like that. And I was like, well, you know, that, you know, I was young at the time, so right. I was kind of like, you know, I'm not Mexican, but, you know, you could feel how that, I, I could feel how it, it just didn't seem right, you right. know, especially that type of conversation within the church with, you know, which is supposed to, from my understanding, like promote empathy and, and understanding and respect for different folks. At yes. least that's what, you know, they, they claim to, mm -hmm. to um, express and, and instill in folks. But um, like when I was around 15, 16, 17, I started seeing or hearing these things in the pastor's sermon about black folks in particular and how, you know, they, black folks stem from the cursed son of Noah, Ham, and, mm -hmm. you know, and right. they're, they're like a cursed race. And, and so wow. I, I come, in the sermon, in the sermon, yeah. Wow. And so, you know, one day I actually confronted the, the pastor in his office and he basically broke down his whole theology to me. And I was just like, you know, I couldn't sleep that night because it just really, it, it was totally antithetical to what my understanding of, you know, Christianity was, my understanding of like God and Jesus mm -hmm. and the Bible. And, and from that day on, I really felt I didn't feel comfortable in that church um and uh and, and eventually i was forced to choose between either staying with that church and returning to weekly um, service or going and one last time to say i no longer wanted to be a, a person who was associated with that church because my mom told me that Either I had to do it or she would do it herself. Wow. Yeah, so long story short, I had to stand in front of the whole church and tell them that, that I no longer wanted to be a part of that church. Yeah, And immediately after I, I, I told the church that I didn't want to be a part of it, uh, the pastor started attacking me in front of everyone and I just basically walked away. Yeah. And that's in California? Yeah, that's in uh, Watsonville. or wow. yeah, Yeah, it was Watsonville. Um, I mean, I was wondering if it was Freedom, which is the next town over, but it was Watsonville proper. Mm. So, um, you know, so, and the thing is that, um, even though like a lot of my memory growing up isn't vivid, I think that those, those, that sermon and the messages were kind of baked into me in ways that I don't even realize to this day, mm. things that, you know, I'm living with my biases that I'm Right. working through mm -hmm. were part of 
those biases were from those type of sermons, you know, things that the messaging that I was receiving without even knowing it, mm -hmm. that, you know, that you, that I, I feel like I still need to unpack. Um, mm -hmm. And then, you know, just by virtue of being born in this country with this long history of violence towards uh, black and brown folks, violence towards um, native folks, you know, it, mm -hmm. it's inevitable that you're going to be living with those type of issues within your body you know um i always feel like anyone that's born in this country is inherently racist because we're born into a racist system mm -hmm. and we're that's the type of messaging that we're receiving daily and it's uh really a, incumbent upon us to kind of start unpacking that and mm -hmm. figuring out like how to work through it um and become empathetic to other people that may be very different from us mm -hmm. you know that's why we're here talking today. Because mm -hmm. honestly, I've never heard that story in full. Mm -hmm. Julie had referenced that, you know, you, you're kind of separated from that space, the mm -hmm. church. But, mm -hmm. like, I didn't know that mm -hmm. and the details. And the thing that strikes me about that is what you said. Is that you don't even realize how many of those other messages have filtered in. Because mm -hmm. when people go to, I mean, we are some church people, right? right. We just talked about the Catholicism. In Jamaica, Jamaica is one of the most Christian countries. My my father was not religious, but his father was a minister. My mother was very... So we inherit that kind of religiosity, I think, like mm -hmm. this experience of being a part of that. And what happens is we go sit there every Sunday, and there's a lot of messages mm -hmm. that come mm -hmm. through. For you to reject, for you to question, first of all, is huge. Because mm -hmm. most of the time, we don't question. We're just <laughs> sitting, receiving. Mm -hmm. But for you to question and then take the step to say no, it's huge. Most of us are sitting there just taking it in. And when you think about how many churches across this country are probably sharing similar messages, right? When you, Personally, for me, when I think about this huge evangelist, Christian evangelist movement that would actually side with someone who is misogynistic, who is racist, I don't... I can't come to terms with it because the faith that I see comes through the doctrine of Christ mm -hmm. that is empathetic, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that is with the least of those, mm -hmm. that I think, and this is where I'm not a Bible scholar, people, mm -hmm. so, but the, the curse that your former minister was talking about, I think is in the Old Testament. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So Christians are supposed to be very focused on the New Testament mm -hmm. from what I understand and what Christ taught. Right. So it's almost like you had a Old Testament to to guide you to a place. But then when Christ came about, there's supposed to be a shift. And what I'm hearing is there's many churches and pastors who aren't shifting mm -hmm. to Christ consciousness. Mm -hmm. So that's deep what you just shared. I, I mean, I'm taking it in and I'm thinking to myself, what do you think the impact of those messages are on young people like yourself who didn't say anything mm -hmm. who don't question who like i said sometimes just sit there and take it in and take it as gospel right. what do you think that greater impact is for them i think yeah i mean in you know inevitably i feel like folks are going to be absorbing that mess i mean just like i absorbed it just like you absorbed it like all of us absorb those messages and unless we take a step back and start unpacking the message and and kind of working through the messaging that we've been receiving since day one, then it's 
taken as truth, you know, especially, I mean, if you're a religious person and you believe the Bible is the truth. So, mm -hmm. um, and then, you know, the pastor is the one that kind of supposedly unpacks that truth. Mm -hmm. So it's easily digestible to the, the congregation. And, and if you're not, if you take that uh, truth and don't unpack it as well, then you're basically relying on this person and their biases for your truth from the Bible. And so that's why I'm, I'm always a big advocate of folks being able to, I mean, definitely um, do what's right for you. Right, Go right. to church, uh, listen to your pastor, find, hopefully you find the right church for you, mm -hmm. but then also take a step back and start unpacking what was being said in that sermon and reading the Bible and seeing how they, you know, map mesh. And then also how that kind of works with your experience. Um, in addition to that, for me, it's, it's also outside reading from the Bible, you know. Right. <laughs> I can't rely on the Bible for all my truth. You right. know, I need to know what happened in this country, you know, historically and um, to understand, like, the present day. And I think, unfortunately, a lot of people in this country um, depend on the word of other people mm. for their truth and don't really take that additional step to kind of unpack mm -hmm. it critically and reach out to other folks that look very different from mm -hmm. them to hear that person's truth and then kind of integrate it into the way that they see the world. Hmm. Um, one thing that I've always had a, um, a problem with is that uh, oftentimes we're forced to see people as black and white, mm -hmm. not meaning like black and white, you know, race, but binary. like binary. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I think that the world just doesn't work like that. Mm -hmm. I mean, we treat the world like that, but that's not how the word, world operates, at least from my experience. I think that there's much more gray than black mm -hmm. and white. And um, and so, uh, you know, I, oftentimes folks, you know, and I, I'm a victim of this as well. You know, I'm, I'm a problem when it comes to this is that I see like white Christians as only one thing, right, right, you know, right. whereas there's a whole spectrum of oh, white yeah. Christians mm -hmm. and, um, and even the white Christians that are, that, that are either racist and know it or racist that don't know, which is most, I think most of them don't understand how yeah. they're racist. Yeah. Um, that's not just their only identity. They have all yeah. kinds of different yeah. identities and if we're able to kind of find the commonalities, yeah. Then we're able to start working on other issues and be and also be open to their truth you know mm. um because they have a lot to share and i think oftentimes folks cast them aside as completely ignorant but i think that uh that they have some truth they have value and they have stuff to share that um that we could learn from you know yeah. as long as we're being really respectful and open with each other you know i can't receive everything they're giving and not expect them to do the same you right know? yeah well you said several things that i want to i want to ask a little bit about history and then i want to go back to the white folks that mm -hmm. you just mentioned mm -hmm. and I, I like to talk about white folks because <laughs> i think that there's a responsibility that white folks have to support in mm -hmm. ending racism of right. all kinds, oppression of all kinds. So we'll get back to that. But history. Mm -hmm. So there's a movement in this country to shut down history, mm -hmm. right? There's they call it 
anti-CRT, but it's really anti-truth, anti-history. Mm -hmm. And I was in a class at Prescott, because I'm in this master's program at Prescott College in social justice and organizing. And apparently one of your former students, I call him Professor Medina. Oscar oh, yeah, Medina. Oscar, yeah, yeah. yeah. Right? It was one of he's been my instructor a couple times. Mm -hmm. And this first one, the class was called Radical Pedagogies. Mm. And he exposed us to a whole bunch of uh, content history from Mesoamerica. Mm. And it was in that class that I really started to put some things together about my own biases. Mm -hmm. And maybe it's not only biases, but my own not knowing about. My own kind of like ignorance ignorance right. there's yeah. the word mm -hmm. to mesoamerica the contributions of course mm -hmm. i've heard about the mayans and all mm -hmm. that but what did i really know and that's the part that i think is missing for so many of us mm -hmm. what do we really know about each other mm -hmm. right mm -hmm. what do we really know about the history of mesoamerica mesoamerican people what do we really know about the history of africa and african descended people native right and me learning that supported me so much and like letting go of some of my own biases and my own kind of like us and theming, mm -hmm. where it became us, mm -hmm. like we're, we're connected. Mm -hmm. What do you think is the importance of teaching history? What do you think is the importance of teaching this kind of history uh, from your seat? Well, I mean, it's like a, you know, it's a cliche, but it, I think that it holds weight is that if we don't learn from the past, then we're going to continue create, uh, doing the same thing that has created problems over and over again. So if we don't uh, see what has happened in the past, dissect it, unpack it, think about how it's impacting the present, then um, we're, we're always gonna be dealing with issues like race and racism and sexism and uh, you know, heterosexism and those type of, the, all those isms. Um, so I think it's very important to not only learn history, but learn histories, mm. you know, because there's so many different ways people have lived their lives, communities have lived their lives in this country. And there's not just one narrative, but there's many different narratives that are woven together uh, into the history of this country. Mm -hmm. um, and so if we don't kind of, you know, if we only take one of those histories as truth, then we're really doing a disservice to all these other communities who may have experienced it very differently. Mm -hmm. um, and really, I think that's it's important for us to learn those histories, be open to those histories in order to really uh, see what's happening today uh, across the different communities so that we can prepare for tomorrow. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I mean, that's what the elders and the wisdom keepers keep teaching us. Learn from it so we don't repeat it. And yet there's so much like, like there's so many barriers and I think inner barriers to wanting <clears throat> to learn because I think the socialization. <clears throat> I think so many of us have been taught to like focus really narrowly on our experience <clears throat> and to make other people the problems in our society. And I think in a as Bell Hook says, uh, capitalist, imperialist, white supremacist, patriarchal society. Mm -hmm. We really target the people who are darker, the people who are at the margins, like our transgender populations. Like we just go in on those and we don't, I think, care. The way we've been programmed, we're not traditionally making room mm -hmm. to really pull in those histories mm -hmm. and to understand. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I think mm -hmm. that's, 
powerful. I wanted to ask you about the white folks, mm -hmm. okay? Because you said something there that I thought was important that, uh -huh. you know, we, and I can say I, I put my hand up, <laughs> that I sometimes like carve people out into little boxes mm -hmm. and I say, you know, they racist. Mm -hmm. So I'm not trying to be their friend, <laughs> right? right? So, right. <laughs> like I'll just, nah, <laughs> not doing it. And then, right. you know what's so fascinating is that I do that from a defense, like from mm -hmm. my place of taking care of myself mm -hmm. and protecting mm -hmm. myself, mm -hmm. right? I, I say to myself, I'm not sure that I want to have a conversation with someone who I'd see as racist. Mm -hmm. And then maybe there's an opportunity there. What is the value that you mentioned? Mm -hmm. There's It's a multi-dimensional, I think, mm -hmm. approach you're taking. Right. That you're like, I'm not just going to decide they're not good enough. Right. So right. what? how do you come to that? And what is it that you see the value? Uh, well, I mean, I came to it because I am a a mixed person so you know I have a lot of white folks in my family I have a lot of brown folks in my family mm -hmm. and so you know just by nature of growing up I had to deal with white folks you know mm -hmm. and I realized by dealing with my family that there are so many different white folks and to be honest I feel like all my white folks are racist all my brown folks are racist you know but they're they're the, it they it manifests itself in different ways oh. Um, and most don't realize that they're racist, you know, um, and I think that's the first step towards really working, uh, towards eliminating racism is understanding that we each, at least from my perspective, all of us mm -hmm. carry it within us mm -hmm. and we have to unpack it and work on it. Um, and so I think the value in reaching out to those people is to, start having those conversations and i know it's difficult i know it's painful i know it could open up wounds that we're trying to heal and it's difficult especially when you're trying to practice self-care um but that's the only way to really start working through those issues is to come is to face it mm -hmm. and i think that you know white folks are not just white folks white folks are also poor folks mm -hmm. they're also dealing with sexism they're dealing with homophobia i mean you know there's a lot, so many, you know, a lot right. of the issues that we're dealing with in black and brown communities, they're also dealing with in black communities. Mm -hmm. And if we could create coalitions or alliances around, you know, um, you know, the, the fact that we're poor and mm -hmm. we're living in a country where like, you know, 1% controls the majority of the wealth in this country, that's, that's one starting place. Mm -hmm. And then from there, we start working on other isms and other issues. But I think that's where the value is, is that, um, you know, we're all dealing with different issues. And if we're able to reach beyond certain ones that have historically created the divide, we could start working through those divides. Mm -hmm. um, and, I, and like I said, I know it's hard. I've dealt with family through the years mm -hmm. who have been very uh, disrespectful, very hurtful. And in many cases, it's because they're ignorant. You know, mm -hmm. it's in many cases, they don't realize that they're being disrespectful and hurtful. And I think that's why I take it upon myself all the times to call them out on it. And mm -hmm. then we start working through it. And I've had many experiences where, you know, I call them out on it and they kind of break down. And, mm -hmm. you know, I, on more than one occasion, I've had family members cry. Mm -hmm. And I know sometimes, you know, it, you, you could say that it, you know, not you, but people can say that, you know, it's just, 
what what our, right, what do tears right. represent? Mm -hmm. um, except maybe pain in the moment. But mm -hmm. if you're not willing to work on it mm -hmm. after that that those tears have dried, then it really doesn't mean anything. But I feel like I have definitely reached some of my white family who have you know broken down and, and cried, and then they reach out to me to kind of figure out like, okay, how how do we get past this? How do we work through this totally. now? So I don't want to completely dismiss white folks as just racist and like unable to be, you know, um, to work beyond it because I think that they're critical mm -hmm. to, you know, moving away from racism in this country. I think that yes. us as black and brown folks, yes. we, we can't do it on our own. That's yes. for certain. You know, we, we need um, alliances and we need to, um, you know, work with each other and work across differences including with white folks yeah including with you know white folks who are are racist you know <laughs> which is difficult but and challenging but yeah. it can happen yeah i'm laughing because here's the thing my hypothesis in this moment mm -hmm. is that white folks have the vast majority of this work to do mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. i think you just modeled something i think i think that when you are someone who's connected, so you said you're a mixed race, you have European heritage. If you have family who are European and you can talk to them, I think that's a beginning mm -hmm. step. I think it's like for you to have the courage to call in or call out whichever way you do it, mm -hmm. is a step mm -hmm. that then I think interrupts what's mm -hmm. been happening so that we can at least raise their consciousness, right? Mm -hmm. So whether or not the behavior changes, something has happened mm -hmm. by you saying. But there's a lot of white families who aren't doing that. There's a lot of folks like you who mm -hmm. are of mixed race, who aren't, who are like afraid. And mm -hmm. I've talked to, mm -hmm. I've workshopped around this, that it's like that moment of I don't belong when I call this group out mm -hmm. because we're in this group mm -hmm. and we do group think. Mm -hmm. So I, I just, you know, I love you anyway, but I'm just saying I admire you for being a voice. And I want to hear, like, and I have another question that's coming up, but I want to hear, like, when you do that, how are you feeling? Like, what's happening in your body? Mm -hmm. Are you feeling that feeling of I'm going to be ostracized? Or are you feeling like this just matters? I'm going to do it. Mm -hmm. What's up for you? I mean, I feel this? all the emotions. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I feel... I feel anger, I feel sadness, I feel like, I mean, I feel like in certain ways, like I'm the one that's framed as the kind of radical in the family, you know, so <laughs> it's almost expected of me to like call out folks when they there he come do some again. shady stuff. <laughs> um, yeah, there you come again. I mean, we just had, you know, Thanksgiving, which is like, you know, kind of like stereotypical having those type of right. crazy conversations. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean... Um, I do it because I love them, you know, mm -hmm. and and I want I want us to move past certain things that create pain in, in me and in other people. And I and to be honest, I do it because I don't think that they mean to be hurtful or mm -hmm. mean to be disrespectful. They're programmed just like the rest of us. Mm -hmm. And you know, like just like I'm still unpacking and trying to deprogram myself. They are as well, but in a different way. And I, if I could help them understand how certain things are being read or certain things uh, impact other people, I'm hoping that they'll be receptive to it. And I think it, it, they become receptive to it because we, we bond 
in ways other than race as well. Mm -hmm. You know, like mm -hmm. we, I mean, obviously we're family, but we have other interests in, in you know, uh, in mm -hmm. common. Mm -hmm. And so I'm able to kind of use those other commonalities to start working on stuff that we don't necessarily see eye to eye on. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I mean, it, it definitely puts you in an uncomfortable place. Um, but I think in order to learn, you have to be uncomfortable. Yeah. You know, that's kind of like a another cliche, but I mean, you don't learn if you're constantly comfortable. I mean, Say that. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So. Well, okay, so let me ask you, I think I have a couple final questions. Like one of the things that I've been coming to terms with is that I'm not only a black identified person. <laughs> Someone asked me years ago, what am I? Well, I've gotten that repeatedly. What are you? What are you? What are you? And I gave my most honest answer a couple years ago. And I said, you know, I'm part descendants of the colonizers and I'm part descendants of African people who were enslaved. And I literally did my ancestry DNA recently. And I'm actually 55% European mm. and 45% So you're like my people. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's like this. Oh, well, you've been black and black all your life. You're like, <laughs> and so I, I, I called on my aunt, who mm. my dad's sister. My dad passed in February. Um, so my dad's sister is like next to kin that I can call on to say, hey, what do you know about this? Because she's like the historian of the family. And so she started unpacking it a little bit, like this side, that side, da, da, da. And then she said something to me that really hit me hard, was that she thinks that there is a side of our family on my grandmother's side that enslaved folks, mm -hmm. right? But mm -hmm. if I'm a descendant of European, that is probably in my lineage, right? Mm -hmm. And coming to terms with that has been so challenging. Like, mm -hmm. I haven't even started to unpack it, mm -hmm. to be honest with you. Mm -hmm. But as I'm delving into these conversations, as, as I plan to do a film about truth, reconciliation, reparations, mm -hmm. I was like, well, what does that mean for you, girl? Because mm -hmm. if your ancestors were both, there's both in your story, right? Mm -hmm. So the complexity that you're talking about here mm -hmm. is within me, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And I am asking myself, how am I going to reckon with the painful histories that are right within my family tree? Mm -hmm. And so, as I hear you talk about the compassion and the connection you have mm -hmm. beyond race, I, you know, it's awakening for me, like, where will I find compassion for my ancestors who, right? And then how do I show up with the awareness of all of that that's within me? Mm -hmm. And I hear you saying you show up with an awareness of all that's within you. And I wonder, like, in this connection, that we're having this conversation on black, about black and brown relationships. Like, you said you're the radical one, right? That they looking at you, here he comes. Like, when you have that conversation with the family member, what happens next? Like, mm -hmm. and how do you, you can't control other people. Mm -hmm. But how do you, like, move forward? Yeah, um, I'm, yeah, I mean, it's difficult. I mean, I, I move forward. Well, you know, with those conversations, um, I always hope that, you know, I learned something. I, I try to stay open to their their truth and what they're bringing to the table. Um, because it's, when we have those conversations, it's not just about like race, it's so many different things. And to be honest, I'm learning a lot as well about them, about myself, about history, you know, family and the United States history. And so um, I, I use 
what I've learned in those conversations and, and kind of apply them to myself and kind of integrate it into the way I perceive the world and the way I act on it and within it. Um, and, and I also try to reach out to them and check in with them and, and see how they're doing. Um, and I think a lot of that is necessary, the follow-up, you know, because you got to follow up to follow through, you know, and, mm-hmm. and I feel like that, you know, if, if you don't support the person that you're helping, um, that you hope is, is, is willing to work on themselves and, and, um, see, you know, kind of unpack things. So they see the world in a different way. If you don't help them with it, then you're basically setting up them up for failure. You know, I think that, um, they could easily fall into a rabbit hole, which is so easily uh, available in, in this day and age with the internet, you know, they could start, um, uh, on the right path and easily get steered into some crazy mm. like you know conspiracy theories mm. and like stuff that you know the people are like into th- theories that people have used to kind of manipulate people and so i think it's really important to constantly check in with your folks um uh, i'm speaking specifically about my family like see how they're doing see if they have any needs if they do ask them how you you know how you can help them and you just hope that they are reciprocal in that respect um but yeah i mean like you said you can't really control people yeah you know and you hope that they're willing to be open and willing to work on themselves and to be honest it gets more and more difficult the older you get (laughs) you get stuck in those ruts but yeah you know that's why it's so important to really be supportive and have a little bit more patience for for older folks i think you know because they move slow yeah. i know that, i mean i'm moving slow each <laughs> slower each and every day you, you come know up to this 50 thing huh? right i know um especially with the sciatic nerve issue now that yeah. got going on um but yeah i mean the other thing is that you know i and i think i already talked about this is that i really have to see myself as always constantly growing always constantly learning because once I feel like I have all the answers and what else is there really to look forward to than, mm-hmm. than death, you know? Right, I was like, well, I think when you have all the answers, <laughs> yeah. it's time to go. Right, right. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, like, I think that there's this um, old proverb that you should always see yourself as a ripening fruit because once you're fully ripe, then you just spoil, mm-hmm. you know? So mm-hmm. that's why I always try to keep that in mind. But um, it's big, big, big it does become more and more difficult the older you get because I mean, you just slower in terms of like the way you want to deal with the world, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, we've, we've experienced a lot and that's why I try to, I mean, the older I get, the real, the more I realize I, I need to respect my ancestors a lot more than, mm-hmm. than I have in the past, you know, and when you're young, you don't realize how, how important they are. How we need to give them space as well to to continue to grow. Yeah, Yeah, I think. Thank you for that, Jose. One of the reasons I wanted to talk to you, honestly, was this whole thing a few months ago at the LA City Council Mm -hmm. with the um, different council members having the conversation where Mm -hmm. they really said some racist things and had Mm -hmm. the like. It seemed to me like. an environment of agreement and like laughter and like just being in that space and Mm. 
I thought to myself as a, as a black identified person, but we've unpacked it, you know, I'm intersectional with, you know, like not only black, but queer and mm. many things. We're many things. We're not just one thing, right? Mm. But just as a, a, a black woman who's also a mother, listening to that, there was something that just really hurt at a deeper level for me to know that we would still be in 2022 in a place where that conversation would occur and that there would be agreement in the room. Um, and so I wanted to ask about that. Mm -hmm. And what was your experience of that? If you know about it, first of all, I'm assuming you do because mm -hmm. you're saying, mm -hmm. <laughs> so I'm assuming you like, yes, I remember this. Yeah. Um, you know, what was your experience of that? And what, what do you think is a path forward in that example mm -hmm. to have greater understanding? Mm -hmm. um, uh, I mean, yeah, I did read about it and I was, I wasn't really shocked, but I was, mm. you know, kind of disappointed, you know, because I felt like, I thought that uh, the brown folks in those positions would, especially given the makeup of Los Angeles, would right. have a lot more respect for for the diversity within their city right. um, um, and the way that they were joking about, you know, African boy, you know, black boys, and, mm -hmm. but it just was disappointing. But I wasn't shocked because I feel like it's so prevalent, and um, and I also feel like it just what takes one person to make those type of jokes, and other people would oftentimes just co-sign because they don't want to be like the person who's like, mm -hmm. you know, the stick in the mud or like mm -hmm. creating the 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 scene within right. the moment. Um, so I think maybe. The other uh, council members who were present, maybe some of them, like, just didn't want to yeah. be the one that right. stood out or stood up, mm -hmm. um, which is also disappointing. Um, but I think that uh, it was important for whoever released that audio um, to have released it because I think mm -hmm. folks need to know what's going on behind the scenes. And I think that happens more often than we really want to admit, but I think that mm -hmm. is kind of also baked into the system, you know, like right. um, the way that people deal with power and maintain power. Um, and the other part of me also is hoping that it's not, we don't take, we don't use the moment to punish, we use the moment to teach, Okay. you know, and, and use it uh, so that we encourage those council members and folks who are similar to them have that have similar, you know, ideas and and uh, ways of being and ways of acting on the world that like, you know, we, we share resources with them and we kind of figure out, okay, now that we know that what's going on behind the scenes, like, how do we move past this? Mm -hmm. You know, uh, we, we don't want to cancel you, mm -hmm. you know, but we want to make sure that um, we get to a place where, you know, this isn't something that is seen as, um, as, as being condoned, you know? Um, yeah, but, and I know you feel the same way. You're not a council person either. Mm -hmm. You know, you feel like, I think from my perspective, I, I think that you feel like, okay, we, we got to use that as a moment, um, to be able to, to teach and reach out to folks and kind of learn mm -hmm. together about how to move forward in a way that's healthy. So I think, you know, it could be used as a moment to just punish someone, but what right. really does that do? Except yeah. for make this one person's life 
the, you know, maybe a living hell or whatever, mm-hmm. which in maybe, you know, I mean, in certain ways, like, you know, I feel like maybe that's what they deserve. But then again, like, I think that there's something greater that can come out of it mm-hmm. that could not only help this person, but help the community. This conversation is too good because I want to ask another thing and I was like, oh, I'm going to wrap up soon, but I really do want to ask. Let's talk about cancel culture for a mm-hmm. second because I agree with you. I, mm-hmm. I don't see the reason. I think we, we are a punitive society. I mm-hmm. think, you know, everything's about punishing people, discipline. I was just watching a film last night on, uh, about Vanessa Guillaume, Guillaume the soldier that uh, oh, was killed at Fort Hood. Right. And they were describing the military and the way that command works, right? And mm-hmm. it's like you just—it's—it's it's highly uh, hierarchical. So there's no middle ground to like learn and to grow together. Mm-hmm. And I think what comes up for me when you say that about cancel culture is like, yes, I, I think we could have teaching moments. And in the context of the Vanessa Guillaume uh, story. Even those military officers, there's a lot they need to learn about sexual harassment, Mm -hmm. sexual assault, and the damage of that. And if we could educate, like if we could teach and like really help people understand the violence and the harm, we might shift things, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. In this context with the LA City Council, I agree. I think, you know, a part of me is like, fire the asses. But really, what happens is that you probably get a new group, a new crew with a similar thought. Mm-hmm. So how do we like move beyond cancel culture in here? What does educating look like in some of these very harmful moments? How, what does it look like to shift from cancel, discipline, to educating, raising some kind of not only awareness, but empathy for other people's experiences? Yeah, um, I mean, I feel like, you know, in many of those situations, you know, I'm, I, I, you know, I, I come from like a decolonial type background in terms of like my academic training. So I really feel like the people who have the most to give are the people who have, are least advantaged. So, you know, the folks most uh, directly mm-hmm. impacted yeah, by yeah, those yeah. hateful words should mm-hmm. be brought in mm-hmm. to share their stories share mm-hmm. their history share how those words are impacting them and then you know from there we, we use that as the foundation and then move to the next step um mm. and i think it has it's an ongoing process you know uh it has to, it can't just happen one day and then we expect things to be better i mean it, it you know you have to constantly work at it um you know, it's like a hoop game. Or, you know, mm-hmm. like if you're play, learning hoop, you got to always practice your shot. So it's it's something that you have to start working into your daily practice. And I think that you know, um, it's, it really starts from the perspective, at least from my from how I feel the, the perspective and the and the experience of the least advantage. Use that as a foundation, and then move from there. Um, in terms of like how to move forward and work work through those type of issues um yeah i mean it's difficult and and i know that like i said before and you've shared it it's very painful 
um, and it opens up wounds that we're trying to heal. At the same time, I feel like if we're really serious about creating a better world, and maybe not selfishly for ourselves, but for our sons and daughters, mm-hmm. our nieces and nephews, yeah. and we we have we it's I mean it's really on us to put ourselves in those situations to mm-hmm. work on ourselves and our communities so that our children have a better um, better life. So we already say something important though. Listen to the most impacted. Mm-hmm. And some of those people are not the most educated mm-hmm. or the most mm-hmm. most degreed. They're the most lived mm-hmm. and they can speak directly to an experience. Mm-hmm. I love I think that is the path, and that's certainly the path that I want to incorporate in my own work is to listen. I don't know if you know about the Zapatistas. You know mm-hmm. anything about that? That to me, mm-hmm. like when I read about the Zapatistas and the model of, like as a leader, it's a being. Mm-hmm. Like there's something that you take away the hierarchy, mm-hmm. and you really pay attention to the people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I hear you saying that. Mm-hmm. Is that is that? Oh what yeah, you're yeah, that? definitely, definitely. And that, like I said, that really came from my, my academic training, um, you know, in the colonial thought, but it's also kind of like my lived experience like I feel like growing up the people that have provided me with the deepest insights into who I am into this world are the ones that are least advantaged the ones that are most impacted by the isms that we live with you know they've opened my eyes in so many different ways and have helped me see the world in in ways that I feel that are um are you know whereas i was previously cynical i feel like optimistic Mm. you know like i Mm -hmm. think that there's the way out of Mm. this mess that we're in Mm -hmm. and and surprisingly enough but also not surprisingly those those insights come from the folks who are most impacted and least advantaged we gotta listen to the uh, people who say they've been sexually assaulted Mm -hmm. and harmed we have to listen to the people who say that they've been most impacted by racism by ableism, by like <laughs> all the all the phobia, transphobia, homo- we gotta listen to the people, mm-hmm. right? That's mm-hmm. what I'm hearing. Today. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Jose. Is there anything that I didn't ask you today that you wanted to speak to? Is there any last thought nah. you have? Nah, I just want to say thank you um, for inviting me. It was a great conversation. Mm-hmm. I wasn't sure mm-hmm. like how it would go because. What's she gonna ask me? <laughs> But I feel I feel so grateful to be a part of this, and I think it was an amazing uh, conversation. I really always love talking to you. Yeah. yeah, same here. Yeah. Thank you, Jose. But can you just tell, introduce your academic? I want to take a little part to be sure that I capture your decol- the work that you were doing. I think it was at Berkeley. Was it at Berkeley? But yeah, tell me about yeah. your academic side. You as a scholar. Well, um, you know, I was. Went to Cal as an undergrad, and my training at that point was uh, Latin American Studies. Then I went into a master's program at Stanford um, in Social Sciences and Education. Then I started my PhD program in Berkeley at the Graduate School of Education and Social Cultural Studies, and that was where I really got into decolonial thought, and I was using that to kind of understand what was going on in this uh, restorative justice youth court program mm. at a, a local high school. It was, it was, um, 
it, you know, it's still in the works. Unfortunately, I had to pause it when my father passed away mm -hmm. and I transitioned into um, uh, taking uh, ownership of the family business. Um, hopefully one day, either with Berkeley or independently or with another institution, I, I hope to finish the, the work because it's, you know, the dissertation is halfway done. Because I think it's important. I, for me, it's important just to get their stories out, the, yeah. the stories that I collected um, during um, my my research phase. Um, but yeah, that's I was using decolonial thought to really understand what was going on in that youth court. Mm. And in the youth court itself, they were training uh, students to be advocates for other students who were, um, you know, charged, for lack of a better word, with some type of misconduct on campus. Mm. So it was it was interesting because it was kind of like structured uh, in a way that was problematic because it was like a court system with, uh, you know, lawyers and a judge. Mm. But they also were trying to integrate restorative justice um, principles and practices into the into the process. Um, and there was a lot of good, some problematic aspects, but um, it was very interesting, yeah. Cheers to the decolonial thought yeah. and that work. And I know you're gonna do it. I know yeah. it's gonna come to fruition, so thank you. Uh, thank you, Tamali. All right, yeah. it's a wrap. So sending conversations, contemplating, what moves to be making? What is the next path in this pasture?